Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Julian Bagini, author of the new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. Julian is a philosopher, journalist, and author of more than 20 books. He's a return guest to the show. Our previous conversation focused on his book, The Great Guide, what David Hume can teach us about being human and living well. You can learn more about Julian's work in the world at julianbagini.com. In the conversation, Julian and I discuss why thinking is about attitudes as well as techniques, the challenges of thinking like a philosopher, the role attention plays in thinking clearly, why self-reflection is critical to reasoning, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. Without any further delay, I now bring you the wise and gracious Julian Bagini. Julian, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Well, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure. I was happy to see your new book coming out, How to Think Like a Philosopher. So that'll be the topic of our conversation today. But before we get into the book, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, how you initially came to have an interest in philosophy? Well, I mean, how I initially came to have an interest in philosophy, I think, was, you know, somewhat haphazard as it is, because, you know, I grew up in the United Kingdom, and philosophy isn't really part of our culture. I mean, that's not a strange thing to say, but it's not part of core education curriculum. So I never encountered it at school. Um, and it's not something that would feature on, you know, television and news very much. One had a vague sense of it. And I think I was just drawn to those big, big issues. You know, I mean, I was a religious youth and I, for my uh, high school, you know, final years, I did English literature and politics and religious studies. So I was just into those big issues and philosophy looked like the place to do those. <laughs> you, you then go to university and find that it's not quite like that. There's quite a lot of uh, groundwork to be done first, but nonetheless, it didn't put me off. <laughs> <laughs> well, love it. Appreciate you sharing a, a, a bit of background there of how this, uh, how this search, as, as we like to call it here, got started. And to transition into the book, though, you, you say um, early on that thinking is about attitudes as well as techniques. What do you mean here? Yeah, well, I think this is a really important point, actually, because you know, when people think about critical thinking and a lot of critical thinking books and texts do focus on techniques, you know, how to construct a valid argument and tell you about syllogisms and um, fallacies to avoid. It does make it sound like it's technical. It sounds like it's something you could teach to a computer and maybe some of it you could. But, you know, when you look time and again and look at who are the good thinkers, who are the not so good thinkers, um, there is this phenomenon of the very smart think person, but the person who's really just always trying to, to win the argument. They're always trying to prove how clever they are. They're always trying to defend whatever view they have. And I've met a lot of people like this, and they're very, very clever, sometimes, you know, fiercely so. But, you know, I, I don't think that 
they're being clever means that, that they're onto to the right thing because it's, they're not putting it in the service the right things. So I think you've got to start with these. Uh, sincerity is one of the key things. So Bernard Williams wrote about this idea in his last book. Uh, Bernard Williams was a sort of 20th century British philosopher, a very well-known one, and he wrote a book called Truth and Truthfulness in which he talked about the virtues of truth. And, and one of his two virtues was sincerity. You've got to really sincerely want to get to the truth. And that sounds obvious. Most people would say that's, of course, what they want. But actually, you've got to work on that sincerity because there are so many sort of prejudices, biases, uh, prior views getting in the way. And I, I think that, you know, if you, if you can get your attitudes right, I think a lot of the other things about right thinking sort of follow from that. In this context, how do you see an attitude connecting or maybe not connecting to something like a core view and belief or, or, or something similar to that? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, when it comes to core core beliefs, I mean, I think it's always the case that you, you always have to have some fundamental beliefs that you, you, you go along with. I mean, you can question everything at some point, but you know, if you question like the very existence of the external world or your, your own sanity, I mean, you know, you then have to get on with things and, and you may not have a proof that, you know, the, the world is out there or you're, you're not mad, but you have to sort of get on regardless. But you know, the, the kind of beliefs which have to be bedrock really should be minimal. They should be the ones that thinking would be impossible without. And I think that that's a real challenge because a lot of the time we take to be fundamental beliefs which aren't of that kind. They're more substantive, you know, they're about uh, – I mean, let's take, for example, let's take an example, a uh, sort of a general worldview. So I would generally say that I was a, a naturalist, right, meaning that I think the natural world is all that there is and there isn't any kind of supernatural world or dimension. And, of course, that's if we start thinking about what do you mean by natural, that gets complicated – Sure, I understand that. But, um, and I kind of took it to be that some of my philosophical heroes, like, you know, David Hume, were also kind of naturalists. And I think they were, but I think it is a way in which they were kind of, there was a kind of agnosticism in there, really. It wasn't that they were firmly committed to the naturalistic view. It's just that they felt that um, you had to assume a natural world in order to make sense of anything. You didn't have to assume the existence of anything else. I and mean, we didn't really have any very good reasons to think, uh, to believe in anything else. So, you know, naturalism becomes a default mode of doing things, but it shouldn't be a kind of a dogma. Oh, God, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, countenance the idea that anything that doesn't fit the natural world doesn't exist. It becomes a methodological thing. So even when it comes to those very general worldviews, you know, you don't want to, commit yourself to more than you have to commit yourself to <laughs> you know you want minimal commitments really because you need to make minimal assumptions i think mm. i appreciate that uh you you write early in the book maybe it's in that in that first chapter that thinking like a philosopher is no simple task you know maybe we shouldn't think about it in the way of um you know life hacks or Maybe that connects to techniques that we were just talking mm. about. Um, but are there a couple reasons that might come to mind as obviously there's many, but maybe a couple of why this is a challenging thing to do? I think it's challenging. Well, if one reason goes back to the attitudes thing. If you 
when you look at like what textbooks say about the fundamentals of good reasoning, from a logical point of view, actually, a lot of them, they're fairly obvious. (laughs) They're not (laughs) difficult from that point of view, right? So what does it mean for a valid to be uh, an argument to be valid? It's for the conclusion to be uh, to necessarily follow from the premises. And if you set things out formally, it's not too difficult to see that. But in practice, in the context of the world, we seem to be amazingly poor, sort of like spotting when things are indeed valid or not valid, sound and not sound, whatever it might be. So a lot of the techniques aren't that difficult. So a lot of the hard hard work comes because I, I don't like to sort of appeal too much to these kind of evolutionary type explanations, but it's it's, it's, it's kind of evidently true that we haven't evolved to primarily be a, a rational, logical thinkers, abstract thinkers. We've evolved to be good at practical problem solving, working things out together and so forth. And we particularly, it seems, haven't evolved to be able to think very well by ourselves, which is perhaps a point we'd come to later. Uh, We do seem to think better when we're in dialogue with others. So one reason why it's such an effort to think well is that our, our route is littered with temptations for shortcuts, assumptions, uh, things which will reassure us and so forth. And it's so hard to avoid all of those things. So that's why it really, I think, takes – that's sort of the key reason, I think, why it's a, a real effort. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting thing. It, um, I don't know. Like the, I, I'm, I'm doing this series with, a, with another person on – we're calling like living the questions. Um, and maybe that – that popular quote from, from Rilke, this idea of, of being patient enough to not take those (laughs) easy detours that you Mm. mentioned. How do you think about cultivating the patience to, you know, just slow down and we'll we'll get there when we get there or something (laughs) like that? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, cultivating is a good word. I mean, I'm a, sort of a fan of, of Aristotle and um, Confucius to a certain extent. They had quite, quite a lot of similarities. And they both kind of hit upon this core idea that human beings are essentially creatures of habit. And, uh, you know, to become a, a good person, a virtuous person in their kind of language, you have to kind of get into the right kind of habits so that doing the right thing becomes natural. So the cultivation of, of you know, intellectual patience and slowness is comes through practice. You've got to practice doing it. So you've got to kind of, you know, get used to stepping back and asking the question and everything. And in the end, certain things do become kind of habitual. And I think you, you can become sensitive to certain things. So, for example, one thing that one can become sensitive to is, is confirmation bias. So, you know, confirmation bias in the psychology literature, confirmation bias is basically the tendency we have to notice things which confirm our beliefs and to, to not notice or ignore or quickly forget the things that don't. And in the psychological literature, this is really sort of presented as though it's just kind of a trap that we absolutely can't avoid. And to a certain extent, that's true. But when you get into the habit of um, looking out for it, you, you will spot it. You'll have that feeling in yourself of being a bit too pleased to hear something, you know. So, you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm reading something and I'm finding myself going, yeah, 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 I know that what's actually happening is this is reinforcing what I would already believe. Therefore, I've got a little alarm signal to kind of go, mm, hang on, am I being too quick, you know. 
and to look again. So you have to cultivate habits like that, habits of self-questioning and self-doubt, of, of spotting the of spotting the warning signs that you may be going going too fast. That seems to be such an important point. I, I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts that you've done over the last few days. And I want to say I heard you say something along the lines of around biases that, you know, maybe there's a problem of thinking about removal instead of like you were talking about there being aware of. Mm. It seems like if I was thinking about that in my from my own perspective, if I'm thinking about this is a really big problem and I need to remove this, mm. wouldn't it make me less likely to admit when I'm, you know, giving in to that tendency instead of just an awareness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. You know, I think that point generalizes to, to other things. I think that many of the things that are difficult or problematic in life, we, we want to remove them. And, you know, a lot of the sort of best-selling self-help people will give you the impression that you can um, remove them. I think most more sensible minds say it's never about that. It's about putting things in their place, getting a grip on them, understanding them. I mean, this is well understood in sort of psychology around things like you know, depression and other kind of anxiety disorders. Uh, yeah, if you set out to deal with that by thinking, I must get rid of this, I must get rid of these negative thoughts, so it's a really tough ask. And you're, you, to be honest, you're probably not going to succeed, which sounds defeatist, right? <laughs> but, you don't, but the thing is, you don't need to. What the way most people come back to a kind of semblance of, or yeah, more like, or not just a semblance, a, a genuinely more contented, balanced life, is that they they notice these things and they they turn the volume down on them. That's another metaphor people use. They turn the dial down on them, and they deal with them in that way. And that's much much more manageable than than wanting to get rid of them. And get, wanting to get rid of them is also just completely unrealistic because, again, to take the mental health example. I mean, most of the things that cause problems for, for mental health are merely are things which are, everyone does, but they go to a certain uh, stronger degree. So to give an example of this, I was just talking the other day to somebody I know who, who has this real sort of like social anxiety thing whereby when they've been out socially, they come back and they go, oh, why did I say that? I was so stupid. Everyone must have thought I was a fool. And for them, it's got to the level where it's kind of debilitating. Now, there are a lot of people who have thoughts like that, but they're not debilitating because they just brush them off. They forget about, forget about them. And the person for whom they become debilitating, what they've got to realize is they don't have to get rid of those thoughts. They've just got to like realize that, in a sense, they're natural thoughts to have, but you can't let them guide your life. And now, we, we were talking about this about critical thinking and biases, right? So, yeah, with biases, it's the same kind of thing. There's no such thing as a totally unbiased thinker. Of course there isn't. I mean... It, that's that's not to be human. To be human is to come to any question with a set of assumptions, with a set of desires about what you want to be right. Of course, you're not going to get rid of them. But the best you can do is to become aware of them in order to try and sort of mitigate them in, in some way. I think that is so helpful. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. In a, in a chapter titled Pay Attention, you write that thinking is largely about attending. Mm. What is attending here to you? Yeah, okay. So this is kind of, in a sense, become a bit of, a, of an obsession, if you like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it, the reason it became a bit of an obsession was that, you know, my 
training, if to call it that. My education in philosophy is in the sort of modern Anglo-American analytic tradition where, you know, philosophy is presented as being primarily about argumentation, argumentation, perhaps also to a certain degree, conceptual clarification. So it's all about, you know, this sort of the, the logical side of things. Um, what follows from this, you know, and, and getting meanings right. And I, and I, I, it's not that I don't think those things are important. I think they are. But uh, when I wrote my book about global philosophy, how the world thinks, I, I came to realize that in, in various traditions, there's this huge emphasis on, on attentiveness, paying attention, noticing things, observing. So you know, if you want to understand anything properly, the first thing you've got to do is to get yourself into the right frame of mind, which is why a lot of non-Western practices include things like you know, meditation and so forth. You know, you breathe properly and all that kind of stuff and really focused and, and, and to see clearly. Now, for some people, this becomes a quasi-mystical thing that you're kind of seeing beyond appearances to the underlying reality. But even without that, I think it's, 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 it's a sensible thing. And I was looking again at a, a lot of things in canonical Western philosophy, and you find that actually, yeah, a lot of the great stuff in Western philosophy is actually it's people paying close attention. You know, Descartes asked himself, what can I doubt and what I ca- can I not doubt? And he wasn't really constructed arguments there. He was just sort of doing the experiment. Can I doubt this? Mm, yes, I can. You know, I mean, there's an element of logic there because you can doubt it without any kind of contradiction. But that, in a sense, that's kind of a, a formal aspect which you don't need to, to prioritize. And then David Hume, who sort of argued against some of the conclusions he, Descartes came to about the nature of the self, you know, he concluded that there was no Cartesian ego, this indivisible mental substance which Descartes thought there was by introspection by saying well yeah you try this at home folks you know sit there and observe what you observe when you are thinking or feeling and and you'll notice thoughts the words in your head the sensations in your limbs perhaps the rumbling in your stomach whatever it might be you don't find a separate eye there there is no separate eye the eye is just a collection of these things now that's by observation that's not an argument uh, and I think in, in, in ethics, I think this is particularly important. In ethics is about trying to attend to what is most ethically important in a situation. And you, you haven't got an argument for why something's ethically important. You know, if I was to sort of like explain to you that if I was trying to make the case that we need to consider animal welfare more, then I would direct you to evidence about the sentience of animals and how they feel pain and how uh, certain ways in which we inflict pain is unnecessary, etc., and, you know, whether you find that persuasive or not is largely about whether you're attending properly t- to those to those facts, whether you're, whether you're sort of like seeing them for what they are. And, of course, you know, you can get them wrong in other ways. You can get them wrong in the way of, like, not acknowledging they're there, sort of imagining animals or automata. You could also make the mistake of kind of anthropomorphizing, not, not you know, imagining animals are just like human beings, whatever it might be. But, again, it's pay- the paying of close attention. So I think that's absolutely um, central. And even argumentation, in a way, you know, you, you can teach someone the formal aspects of an, of an argument. But if you say to somebody, look, just ask yourself when you're presented with an argument, does this follow from that? <laughs> you know, just pay attention. And a lot of the time, without any formal training in logic, you will notice, you go, well, well that doesn't follow. That, no, that, that's right. That doesn't follow, does it? Um, you know, the, obviously, I, I do think that having some awareness of the the formal aspects of argumentation make you more sensitive to these things, and you might spot things a bit earlier. But a, a lot of a lot of 
bad argument can be spotted simply by paying attention to what people are doing and not being swept along by the rhetoric or the assumptions. Mm. I may have asked you this question last time we connected mm-hmm. regarding Hume. So I apologize if it's a, a repeat here in advance, Julian. But I'm curious, like, broadly speaking, this paying attention, maybe in Eastern philosophy, which you, you bring into this book and your, in your other books, mindfulness, meditation, stillness practices, how do you make sense of maybe people like Hume and other, you know, people in Western philosophy, maybe even early Western philosophy, I think of like the Stoics and things like that, of coming to similar insights that say in Eastern philosophy, they might point to meditation as like the way to pay attention, meditation. But it seems like there's you know, other paths that mm-hmm. might lead you to to cultivate this skill of paying close attention. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you, uh, apologies if you uh, you apologize for potentially giving a, an old question. I might give you an old answer or I may give you a completely different one. <laughs> it may even contradict the previous one. I hope it doesn't. Um, well, you know, I do think that there are usually more than one ways to get to the top of the mountain, so to use that sort of metaphor. And, and also, a lot of those ways are actually the same way, uh, slightly differently presented, I think. Mm-hmm. So if we take, you know, mindfulness is an interesting one because, you know, mindfulness has become associated with a fairly formal practice, which is itself a secular adaptation of an ancient kind of practice. You know, when people do their mindfulness in the context of, uh, psychotherapy or counselling. It's, it's not exactly what people were doing in Buddhist monasteries a couple of thousand years ago, right? It's inspired by and based on. But also, you know, as those traditions say, there's, 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 there's the formal meditation. There's also that aspect of d- doing things mindfully. So, you know, again, in the monastery, when people were like making the soup or washing the dishes or whatever it was they were doing, they were supposed to be doing that mindfully. And that was a formal mindfulness practice. So, you know, in a way, these are just sort of like formalized, formalized ways of trying to, to pay close attention. And, and, and what they thought worth paying attention to um, was perhaps some, sometimes a bit specific. Um, you know, they, were particular, they had particular ethical goals. So, you know, they wanted people to focus on certain things because those things were important for the ethical goals for the, for the broader system. Um, it wasn't just like, you know, do it because it's good for you. you know, <laughs> again, the secular version is do it, it lowers your blood pressure, makes you, makes you calmer. No, they were pursuing very specific kind of ethical goals. So really, this is just part of a broader family of practices, which are about the close paying of attention. And, you know, and we've developed completely different ones. So the, the modern sort of scientific method and methods of experimentation, you know, going back to Bacon, you know, this was somebody thinking, well, you know, this is a way of attending to the world in a very careful and systematic way, which gives us great results. Now, you know, if you were to sort of like compare doing a scientific experiment with kind of, uh, you know, the sitting meditation of the Zen monks, people might say that's a very odd comparison. Um, and it's it's only odd because, you know, obviously they're not the same thing, but, you know, they're, 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 they're very sort of different ways of achieving a similar goal of really focusing your mind. Um, so yeah, I think it's not surprising that we see 
so they're both similarity, you know, for similarity and different, different ways of doing things which are, have enough in common for it to be made sense of, 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 of almost being the same thing, you know. Uh, I'm similar kind of thing, you know, an artist. I mean, you know, art, what, what do artists do? You know, uh, visual art, I think particularly visual artists, visual artists, you know, they say the, the main thing a visual artist has to do is to really pay close attention to everything, to what it is they're painting, to their tools. I'm, I have no aptitude for this at all. But again, if you, if you look at the re- completely different styles of art we've had in history, you know, that yields very, very different results depending upon what exactly they think one should be attending to both in, you know, uh, the, the world and, and the artwork itself. So yeah, there's, there's, there's this huge variety under the same umbrella. I have a related question. Uh, I think around attending some sort of philosophical thinking, how do we know when we've maybe teetered into the rumination thing <laughs> for any listen, you know, it's like uh, anything come to mind around philosophical thinking and, and rumination. Well, I, I, let's just check. We're, we're meaning the same thing by rumination. Cause I think one of the, one of the well, chapters is something like what's your language. Right. And I think that sometimes <laughs> yeah. we get into this sort of trap of that. We think we're talking about the same thing and we're not. Are we talking about rumin- the un- unhelpful form of ruminative thought in which you sort of go over things again and again, your mind gets stuck in these sort of negative cycles. Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that is an interesting one. And I think one of what, what are, and I'm not, a, I'm not a sort of psychotherapist or a counselor. So I'll be giving a fairly sort of uninformed answer, but I think there are some sort of differences. I mean, uh, first of all, there's a phenomenologically is, is it helpful or not? Right. You know, I mean, um, you know, is it causing you sort of emotional distress? And I can imagine overlap. Sometimes people get really obsessed by a philosophical problem and they can't solve it and they can't stop thinking about it. And it's going round and round in their head. And that's probably got some similarity with that kind of rumination. And, it, and it's possible perhaps to get depressed about that. People do get depressed about intellectual issues. Um, the interesting thing there, of course, though, is uh, one of the things that psychology... Sorry, you, you, I'm going off on huge tangents now. I can feel it already. One of the oh, issues with, with contemporary psychology is that mm-hmm. as psychology divorced itself from philosophy, psychology became very reluctant to pronounce on anything which we might call normative. In other words, the way things ought to be or ought not to be, particularly from an ethical sense. It, you know, it saw itself as a as a descriptive science, really. Um, I think the problem is that you can't get away from the normative in psychology, you know, because because you're concerned with feeling well, feeling not well, mental health, and unless you make that purely about, you know, how happy someone reports they are, then you're on a hiding to nothing. So I think, so, you know, from a psychological point of view, if someone is very happy um, living a life in which they are exploiting other people and being very selfish, and I think that's, that's a bad thing and we, we shouldn't be doing that. At the same time, you know, there are certain things in life which we really value, which can actually make us unhappy or cause us stress and whatever. And and I think we have a problem with our sort of modern understanding of, of you know, psychology and mental well-being and flourishing, that we think those two things are in contradiction. And I, I don't think they are, actually. I think we're just wrong to think that all the good forms of life are the ones which leave people as happy and as calm, as relaxed as possible. 
I mean, mm. time and again, you see people who, you know, you biographies of great artists. And often the, the cliche of the tortured soul is overdone. Um, but a, a lot, a large proportion of, of artists were to a certain extent tortured, right? They were, they struggled, they'd be angry, they'd find themselves frustrated, they couldn't achieve what they were going to do, and so forth. Um, and yeah, but they, they, they were doing something they really valued and they had incredibly purposeful, meaningful lives. And I think they would have, you know, not wanted to have lived in any other way. Mm. So, so I'm coming back. So this is a roundabout way of going to you. What's the difference between being sort of finding yourself just sort of grappling with a problem, like a philosophical problem or artistic problem or another problem, which is actually making you a bit miserable uh, that you can't solve it compared to sort of mere rumination. And I think the difference is, uh, I think there are differences in the sense, you know, rumination is just a completely unhelpful cycle, which um, is being perpetuated by unhelpful thoughts, which we better not to have, <laughs> and is only causing you misery, right? Now, if you were to analyse that further, you'd have to, you know, go into examples. I think that's, that's kind of true. That's not what happens when you get stuck on a difficult philosophical problem. Yeah, from the outside, people say, why are you so bothered about this? You know, it's not that important. But if it's related to a vital life project or something you think is important, it's perfectly reasonable, perfectly reasonable. So um, that's a kind of part part of an answer, I think. Um, but I also think that a lot of the time, again, if you sort of get people to, you know, attention is is, is an important part of recognising that, you know. I think that when you speak to people who are stuck in that unhelpful rumination, part of the job of the therapist is to get them to articulate what's going on, reflect upon it and think about it. And they will recognise themselves that this is unhelpful and it's not doing them any good. And they would often even recognise the element of irrationality in it, but say, but I just can't help it, I get stuck in it. Whereas if it was someone who was stuck in a kind of philosophical rumination, they would say, yeah, but it's just because... I, I, can't, I really want to be able to solve this problem and just can't see my way through it. And that, that's not, that's not because I'm, you know, um, doing something unhealthy or yeah. I, I, yeah. It just is frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Heartbreaking in a way, in some, some examples, as you were talking about the, the artist there, I'm thinking of um, Van Gogh, you know, like the last couple of years of his life, I think he completed, I, I can't even remember the number, but some sort of like 800 oil paintings, just this, uh, you know, crazy number where fixated on something, if you will. And it, it reminds me of something you have in, in your book, which I, I think is is interesting. Don't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you maybe wrestle with some of these important problems or tackle some of these important endeavors? But remember, maybe balance is the is the wrong mm. word, but, you know, to not take yourself and it too seriously. You know, how do you think about that and what what led you to include that in the book? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I, I, I'm, I'm glad and not glad you raised it because, you know, I can see I can see the case for wanting to reject that as a piece of advice, you know, that, you know, from a point of view of, 
you know, I tend to think that, you know, human beings on the whole tend to hubris too much and self-importance is something that is not an attractive feature. And, you know, I, I found the more self-important a philosopher thinks they are generally, the less important they think they actually are, you know. Mm. Um, so there are lots of reasons for being against pride and arrogance and hubris. On the other hand, you know, you might say, you know, a lot of people have only done great work because they have thought that this was important and thought themselves capable of doing it in some way. You know, I'm the person for the job. There's a very good biography of the philosopher Derek Parfit, which has just been published. And it, it does seem, you know, that he thought there was this vitally important question that had to be answered in ethics. And, you know, he may not have been the only one able to answer it, but he he, he was one of the few people who had a chance to, to, to do it. So he had this kind of sense of duty. Um, I was reminded of the also excellent biography of Wittgenstein by, by Ray Monk, with the subtitle of which was The Duty of Genius, right? So it's the idea that somehow, you know, Wittgenstein knew he was some kind of genius and felt that as a result, he had some kind of duty to to fulfil that. And I think Parvit perhaps had the same kind of thought. And, and he might say, well, okay, so if we were to say to people, don't take yourself too seriously, that wouldn't have been good advice. It might have, have, have put them off. Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, first of all, I think that, Statistically speaking, um, the number of people who uh, would be better off not thinking they are these geniuses with a mission to save the universe <laughs> um, uh, being brought down to size is, is, is you know, there, there are many more of them than the, the occasional few who really are. But even then, you know, I don't think you need to take yourself seriously to take your work seriously, right, or to take yeah. what you engage with seriously. That is, that is a difference, you know. And I think... Um, also, depending on what you're doing, you can also be, to a certain degree, a little bit agnostic about it. I mean, I mean, I try not to. Take, I, I said, well, do I try not? I try not to take myself too seriously in the sense that I, I resist sort of like thinking that there's anything particularly special about me or gifted about me, or or anything like that. Right? Um, I think the things that I'm interested in, a lot of them are really important. I don't know whether I can articulate them and write about them better than other people but i'll give it my best shot so I, I do take the i do take the work seriously i try and do the best job i can of it but i do know that in the end of the day you know likelihood is that i'm very unlikely to be one of those tiny few people who have made a you know a huge difference by by virtue of their own intellect um and skill or ability um, I might have helped people to understand things a bit and to join the dots. That's really what I kind of aim to do. So I think you can take you can take your work seriously and take things seriously without taking yourself too seriously. I mean, even on big things. So let's take. So it's, 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 you can tell this is a difficult question because I'm rambling on it. I mean, let's take people who are involved in in really important things, like I don't know, trying to um, think of the scientists who are trying to come up with the. COVID-19 vaccine, the height of the pandemic, right? Um, did they have to take themselves seriously? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that, you know, if, if, you, if you were approaching that work and in your mind you were thinking about how, you know, it was your destiny to save humanity and all that kind of stuff, rather than you were thinking, I've got to do all I can to try and see what I can do and make, if someone else gets there first, even better, you know, because whoever gets there first, that's the thing. I, you know, my bet is actually that first attitude is neither isn't necessary 
to doing the work properly and well and could even be unhelpful because the moment people start to think that they're special or that they're gifted, it, it makes them overlook things, you know, ignore their own mistakes, get blind to their own errors. Um, so, you know, I think that sense of humility is important. But right at the beginning, going back to the question, you use the word balance in the question and um, not sure if it's right. That is always right because, you know, one of the ways, one of the conclusions of the book is that there is a kind of an unstated sort of methodological assumption behind everything, which again is Aristotle. So Aristotle was of the view that with pretty much everything, the right course of action, the right way to do things is always at a certain point between two extremes. It's not the opposite. It's not the good and bad aren't opposites in that way. The good sits between two extremes, both of which are bad. When it comes to arrogance, self-belief and so forth, you can have too little and you can have too much of it. But because I think we tend to have too much of it rather than too little, you know, that's why I think you, you want to caution against that taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing of how do you know where you fall on that mm. too much or, or, or too little on that topic or, or any other topic. So I'm curious on self-knowledge, mm. you know, understanding yourself a bit, you write in the in the book somewhere of this brutal honesty mm. you know i'm assuming you use that word brutal on purpose yeah. you know what does that brutal honesty in your view look like in daily life for for a listener that is looking to maybe increase their self knowledge sprinkle in some brutal honesty you know how do we put that into into play yeah, I mean, self knowledge is a huge, huge issue, um, and it, it, it's 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 difficult. Um, you know, I say brutal self knowledge, there, but there are people who are too, there are, of course, people who are too hard on themselves as well. So you know, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm. You could say I, I've got too much in mind, sort of um, the kind of people who, who who need the brutality, and I'm not thinking enough about the people who need a bit more. Um, self-kindness if you like but um, uh, again it's difficult to, I think again I think well so if you go back to the, the, the mean thing the Aristotle thing so getting it exactly right getting the exact balance is difficult so a general strategy what you try to do is you you err on the side that it's better to err on right and mm -hmm. so if you're looking at yourself you need to push yourself to the side the opposite side of where you would tend to fall so if you tend to be a rather cowardly person. You've got to push yourself to be braver than you're comfortable with, right? Whereas if you're rash and you jump into things, you've got to push yourself to actually take, you know, to, to be what in your own mind might seem a little bit sort of cowardly. Um, in terms of your own sort of assessment, so you've got to kind of like have, you've got to start with some kind of realistic view of, of you know your own sense of ego and all of that and then this is complicated because i think i think these things break down they're, 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 it's not just one thing we talk about self-esteem and we talk about self-confidence well they're, they're two different things for a start okay so um so for example i may have sort of low self-confidence and, and high self-esteem in the sense that i i may not believe i'm capable of doing very much at all but I, I, I value myself as a person. I think I'm a perfectly decent human being. I don't have any problems with self-esteem. I don't feel like inferior. It's just that I don't think I'm very good at many things. 
On the other hand, someone can be full of self-confidence and love. Yeah, so these these things are separate. But even self-confidence and self-esteem, um, I think, you know, when you go to any individual, you often find people are very complicated and it, it depends on what you're talking about. They can have a lot of self-confidence about one thing and a, a real lack of self-confidence about other. They can have a very high self-esteem in some ways and very low self-esteem in others. So, you know, so first of all, you've got to really sort of learn more about where you sit on these spectra. You've got to understand what are the things, uh, yeah, what are the things where I tend to be too confident or too unconfident about whatever it might be. And to do that, you do, you think others are, are very helpful for this because we're not necessarily very good judges of ourselves. So you, you trusted others, friends, people who know you well. And then you've got to sort of like, you know, push yourself in whatever direction it is you need pushing on those different things. Um, it's, it's, it goes back to right at the beginning. You know, none, none of this is easy. It's none of it's easy, partly because it's all very complicated. And I think that, you know, uh, one of the frustrations I have with a lot of the kind of self-help stuff is that a lot of it is rooted in, in things which are kind of true and helpful, but they end up giving people a very simplified message. So I think the self-esteem one is about that. You know, people recognize that a lot of people suffer with low self-esteem. And so like the sort of the mantra to, to get over that is you just got to feel positive about yourself all the time. But you know, there's certain things you shouldn't feel positive yourself about if you've got no reason to feel positive about them, you know. Um, uh, You've got to be able to see your flaws and accept them. If you just tell yourself every time you find yourself being self-critical, no, I'm damaging my self-esteem, I shouldn't do that, I should be praising myself. Well, that's that's complacent. That's not taking your own sort of ethical development seriously. That's kind of saying, I want to feel good even if I even if I shouldn't feel good about certain things. So that's a brutal, that's a, to go back to the brutal, that's a brutal aspect of it as well. You know, you, you, you've got to be prepared to, to accept the fact sometimes you, you're kind of wrong and you're failing. I really appreciate the answer, Julian, and the book. I, I think many of our listeners are going to love this book. It is such a thoughtful, well-written book on, on the topic because it is um, a con. con- complicated and and difficult thing as you mentioned and you do a great job you know explaining that and providing you know tools to help us along the way thank you uh another a point that that comes up i want to say early on in the in the book and maybe we did this in the beginning of the conversation of this defining terms mm. you say the call to define your terms can be infuriating but if we're talking about serious ideas rather than menu choices, it's basic cognitive hygiene. So yeah. for any listeners, philosophers are very particular on this uh, defining terms. Uh, so could you say more there? Yeah, but again, but, but then you also have to be careful not to kind of um, I- insist on very precise definitions where, where they're not possible. So, I mean, the, the main thing is yeah. you've got to be clear what you're talking about. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, words simply... It's the nature of language that things often have different meanings. They can have the different meanings, you know, um, e- even, you know, we are two, two nations divided by common language is the expression, isn't it? So, you know, um, if I say I'm going to be there momentarily, um, that to you means I'm going to be there soon. Uh, to an English speaker, it means I'm only, I'm only going to be there for a short while. Momentarily in English, British English is for a very short period. Uh, so, you know, so even basic things, things like that, when things get more technical, it gets even worse. Um, 
So you've got to be clear that you're talking about the same thing with someone. And then you've got to be sure, clear that if you're having a disagreement, you're not just disagreeing about language, you know. So, for example, you know, free will is one of the thorniest debates in philosophy. But sometimes it's just the case that people agree entirely about the capacities that human beings have and human beings don't have. One party thinks that we can call that free will, and the other thinks we shouldn't call that free will. Now, <laughs> now, you can have a, now, it's perfectly legitimate to have a debate about whether it should be called free will or not. But that isn't the key. That isn't the key issue. The key issue is what are these capacities we have? And are these capacities sufficient to merit treating people as having responsibility, for example, or, you know, having choice or whatever it might be? So, you know, you've really got to sort of like uh, be, be, be clear about that. The, the problems, but there are problems when people kind of mistake the need to define your terms with a kind of, a, you know, a, an absolute mission to be able to entirely pin down with precision exactly what something means and distinguishes it from something else. Because, you know, a lot, a lot of things aren't just aren't like that. Most words aren't like that. In fact, Generally speaking, the only words you can give those very specific meanings to are technical terms that have been coined for a particular reason and simply legal terms, you know. So, you know, in any kind of, in legal, in, in law, it's often in contracts that by X it is meant Y and it gives you the definition, you know. Um, if you sign a book contract, it will say uh, the contributor in inverted commas and it will tell you what this means by the contributor, what it means by the, the publisher, etc. Um, but if you if you go down the road of of um, just absolutely insisting that you've got to have this rigid thing which admits of no exceptions, I mean, one problem is you can end up in a way just sort of rather than arguing for a position, effectively just stipulating what the answer is, right? So let's say we're going to talk about what justice is, right? The whole point, there's, there wouldn't be a discussion to have if there was a clearly agreed definition of what justice is, right? <laughs> so the very fact that there isn't, that's why we have the debate. So when we talk about what is justice, in part, what we're doing is we're advocating. And again, this is something that people miss. They think that all we're trying to do is to find out what it really means. Actually, what people are often doing is they're advocating for a certain way of understanding justice against other ways of understanding justice. So, you know, if you come from a more libertarian kind of view, you, you're trying to advocate for the view that justice is primarily about allowing people their individual liberty and, and have their freedom to pursue their own lives without state interference, etc. Whereas if you come from a sort of a more left-wing sort of perspective, you're going to advocate for a conception of justice where it's primarily about people having sort of, you know, the, the opportunities and, and outcomes to have a good life, whatever it might be. You know, now... Yeah, if you sort of like pretend, <laughs> if you just like imagine that um, you're, you're, all you're trying to do is, is is work out what the actual definition is, as though it's already there waiting to be found, I think you're misunderstanding the nature of 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 the project. And the other risk is, and you know, what you'll do is you'll end up defining it in such a way that your position has to be right. You know, by definition, by justice, I mean X, it mean X, Y, and Z. And oh, lo and behold, that that fits what it is you're advocating for. So, yeah, so as we should be as precise as we can, but not more so. And again, to go back to Aristotle, the, the quote from Aristotle, which I've repeated most often, and if, everyone were, if anyone were to sort of torture themselves by, by listening to every single podcast or interview I've ever done, this would probably be <laughs> the quote that appears the most 
from Aristotle, it is the mark of the trained mind only to ex- expect that degree of precision that the subject matter allows. And I probably phrase mm. that slightly differently every time. And that was his point. So he was saying in mathematics, absolute precision, right? You know, there's no room for vagueness in mathematics. But in ethics and political science, you want to be as precise as you can, but you can't be precise like you are with mathematics. And um, the trained mind, the wise mind understands that and doesn't try to kind of, uh, you know, sharpen things more than they can be sharpened. Let me ask you, and maybe this is a a time to transition to this, uh, what is wisdom in daily life type of question. But be- before that, I'm curious your thoughts on, like you brought up justice or any any sort of thing of maybe spending the time, what, what might be the benefit of spending the time to know what you think about some of these questions, like what is virtue, what is wisdom, what is love, you know, any sort of thing like that of maybe not to the extreme, but creating a bit of clarity around, you know, what it is, uh, you know, you you think about these things in, in daily life, like as a way of life type of thing. Well, yeah, I, mean, there's, I can see a value in that exercise, but I... I, I I'm, I'm not entirely, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding or, you know, there's more than one way of interpreting what it is you're, you're suggesting. But I think that in general, we want to avoid um, thinking that the most important thing is to have a view. <laughs> you know, I think in a way, what we want to understand is, is what isn't clear yet and mm. what we're not sure of. Um and yes, it's, it can be, it's, it's useful to think, well, what do I actually think? But in a way, that's kind of to test it, to think, well, you know, what, or in practice, you know, what must I think? So uh, one of the most useful ways of doing this is, is not just to ask yourself that question in a kind of a purely intellectual way. But, um, well, okay, so justice is a good one. So, okay, let's say somebody was just observing me going around my, my life. What would they conclude? I thought just now. I think a lot of people. If you yeah. ask that question, I think a lot of people are going to find themselves a bit uncomfortable because they're going to say, "Well, it'd probably be very difficult for anyone to work out what I thought justice meant by my life because I don't really spend a lot of time um, trying to uphold it." So they would see that I'm honest. Hopefully, <laughs> would they? <laughs> would they see that? Would they see the honest? Would you see that you? Um, you know, uh, tell the, the shopkeeper if you've been given too much change or, or whatever it might be. Um, do they see you making choices in what you buy in ways that maximize justice or do they see you being indifferent to justice? In other words, you know, I'm particularly interested in these issues around, around food and stuff, you know. Uh, are you making an effort to buy things that give a fair deal to the farmers or do you just go for the cheapest thing, right? So you might find that, yeah, uh, actually, if people look at my behaviour, it seems that my idea of justice is really getting the best deal for myself without doing anything too obviously harmful to others. That's not very good. So if you're going to test what you think, I think you you want to test it against your behaviour. 
and not just do an internal thing of what's my conception. Um, mm. That's a much, much more useful exercise and a, and a troubling, I think a troubling one. I mean, I'm not saying that it'd be troubling for anyone. You know, if I look at yeah. the way I live my life, you know, I, I like to think I have principles and all that kind of stuff, but I'm very aware that, you know, I, I fundamentally live quite a comfortable life in which, um, you know, the, 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 the troubles and tribulations of, of people who are a lot worse off than me don't impinge that much. So, you know, I'm mm. not, can't be that altruistic really. Hmm. Yeah. So the, you know, this question, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? What, what comes to mind, Julian, if somebody throws that question at you? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. So the, fir the first, the first, the first temptation is to resist answering it, which is easy because I mean, it's the easy temptation to fall into because I think first of all, you know, again, as a slogan, which will perhaps be on a t-shirt is, you know, there is no algorithm, you know, so, you know, the whole point about wisdom as opposed to kind of mechanical or technical knowledge is there's no algorithm for it. It's based on experience and judgment. And these are things that you can't reduce to a formula. But um, so for that reason, you know, you, you wouldn't want to kind of reduce it to one thing. But, you know, the question is inviting me to sort of come up with something which is can be uh, generally understood. And I was thinking that actually in daily life, I think that the, the challenge of wisdom can often, perhaps not always, can often be seen as making that right judgment, which balances, um, the, makes the right balance between sensitivity to pattern and sensitivity to particularity. And, and what I mean is this, right? So um, if you could, you, you can't really get on in life unless you observe certain patterns in the world, right? You don't learn anything unless you sort of observe there are, there are patterns. Um, you know, the most basic level, if I sit on this chair, it's not going to collapse, right? If I dial up the internet, it's going to work, you know. But there are also things more to do with human nature and things like that. You know, if you're rude to people, they're not likely to be cooperative. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you, well, so there are these patterns and then patterns get complicated. So if you want to help people, what's the best way to help people? Okay. And there were probably patterns around that too. So you've got to help people in ways that are empowering and not disempowering. If you, if you help someone in a way that actually takes away agency from them, you often perhaps do help them in the short term, but in the long run, you often make things worse for them. So that's the kind of pattern you've got to be aware of. So if you're in a position where you want to help, you've got to think, oh, I've got to be careful of that. So, you, you, so part of what wisdom is about is about, you know, having a, a richer, and fuller idea of what those patterns are. So you don't just fall for the most simplistic general ones. But then, of course, the whole point is that no two situations are alike. Every particular situation is different. And part of what wisdom requires is you to be able to come to a situation which, in a sense, there are precedents for in some ways, but this is unique. And you've got to respond to what is unique about this situation, right? that's difficult. So this is what I mean. It's about balancing sensitivity to pattern and sensitivity to particularities. And if you can only do one of these things, if you only pay attention to the particularities, you know, 
you're, 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 you're just basically making everything up on the spot and it, you, know, you could be very, very wrong. If you're only ever paying attention to the, to the previous patterns, you may be spotting something that's really importantly different this time. And, and the, 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 the wisdom, so the judgment element of wisdom is you've got to make that judgment about how to do that. And that's difficult. Um, paying attention is, of course, one of the key ways of doing that. You know, you've got to pay attention both to, well, okay, so I, I'm seeing patterns here i'm seeing this as an instance of a previous pattern but which pattern really is it really that pattern and what are the important dissimilarities what are the important similarities you've got to really really sort of drill down and, uh, and attend to it so that that that's that's that um <laughs> and as like everything we're talking about, it's all about it's all about balance and it's it's none of it's easy um that's the deal folks <laughs> well, beautiful. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Julian. That is a, a great way to, to wrap it up. And again, your book is How to Think Like a Philosopher. Is there anything we didn't touch on that, that uh, we should mention to the listeners and also anywhere that you might point listeners that are interested in learning more about you? Um, well, I mean, you know, the, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the big things. Obviously, there's way more in it, so but we, we can't indulge them too much. Um, sure. I mean, you know, the, the website, my website, which is just julianbagini.com, has got links to everything. Um, I've done articles uh, and other books and quite a lot of different sort of podcasts and things over the years as well. There's my own podcast, which is – um, so you find it under microphilosophy and the last season of which included, um, seven episodes, which were discussions with philosophers about, you know, what they thought was important for thinking well. So we had sort of like some advice from, from, from various philosophers, which we discussed and chewed over. I, I found that very, very interesting to record. So I hope people find it interesting to, to listen to. And thank you for having me back. It's, it's a, always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.